The Hamlet Podcast, episode 86. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanretty. Hamlet has been having a quiet conversation with Horatio while the players make their final preparations for their performance. At the end of last week's segment, he told Horatio to observe his uncle, since one scene of the play they're about to watch comes near the circumstance of his father's death, and he wants to be sure he isn't the only person who sees Claudius's reaction. Hamlet continues. If his occulted guilt do not itself unkennel in one speech, it is a damned ghost that we have seen, and my imaginations are as foul as Vulcan's stiffy. Give him heedful note, for I mine eyes will rivet to his face, and after we will both our judgments join in censure of his seeming. Hamlet here acknowledges a really important concern, and one that we haven't really heard for several scenes, as he has become increasingly convinced of his uncle's guilt. It is still possible that the ghost he saw was a malevolent spirit. Back in Act 1, Scene 4, he wondered whether he was speaking to a spirit of health or a goblin damned. Here, there's still a chance in his mind that it's not a trustworthy ghost. He says that if Claudius's occulted or hidden guilt does not unkennel itself, it is a damned ghost that they have seen. Unkennel is a very rare word in Shakespeare, used here to conjure the image of Claudius's guilt like a wild dog that will emerge from its kennel and show itself when, as Hamlet hopes and plans, the king sees his own actions reflected during the play. If all goes to plan, he will be one of the guilty creatures sitting at a play Hamlet described at the end of Act 2, Scene 2, and he will be so struck to the soul that he might even announce his crimes in the heat of the moment. Hamlet imagines his guilt unkenneling itself in one speech. Some editors have suggested that this means Claudius revealing the murder within the text that Hamlet has added to the play, but I think it's more likely he's envisaging the guilty king proclaiming his malefactions in the heat of the moment. Hamlet would be delighted to see Claudius compromise himself so absolutely in front of the entire court. But, of course, if the king does not respond according to plan, Hamlet must assume that the ghost is a damned one, and that his imaginings are as foul as Vulcan's stiffy. Vulcan was the blacksmith of the gods, and his workshop was believed to be under Mount Etna in Sicily. This was a crude, dirty place, easily associated with hell and pollution. Hamlet acknowledges that if the ghost has led his mind astray, and Claudius isn't guilty, his imaginations, or suspicions, are as polluted and foul as the darkest, dirtiest place in all of the pagan underworld. As such, it is important that he and Horatio watch the king like hawks. They will give him heedful note. Hamlet himself will rivet his eyes onto Claudius's face, and this is a nice little follow-on from the image of the blacksmith, and afterwards they will join their judgments and discuss how the king seemed to react. Shakespeare did not write the scene in which Hamlet told Horatio everything that happened on the battlements at the end of Act One when he saw the ghost. We, the audience, already have heard that information, and Shakespeare lets us assume that Hamlet and Horatio speak about it elsewhere. Instead, Shakespeare uses the stage time to let Hamlet show us what Horatio means to him. It is an important contrast that we get to see Hamlet being totally honest with someone he respects and values after all the mind games he's played with his purported friends, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Horatio now agrees with the plan. Well, my lord, if he steal aught, though whilst this play is playing and scape detecting, I will pay the theft. 
Horatio is saying that if the king manages to steal aught or do anything undetected while the play is being performed, he himself will pay the debt of whatever is stolen. In other words, he wagers that he'll watch the king so closely that he won't be able to do anything unobserved. It's almost showtime now, and people start to congregate for the performance. Hamlet says, They are coming to the play. I must be idle. Get you a place. He's dismissing Horatio to downplay their intimacy, and get you a place can also be a means of positioning his friend in a spot best suited for the task at hand. A good production will need to set up the playing area for the performance, put the king and queen in a place to watch it in front of the rest of the court, and position Hamlet and Horatio in such a way that we the audience can see them seeing Claudius see the play. Hamlet says he must be idle. It could of course mean simply that he needs to look innocent and idle, like he hasn't been conspiring with Horatio or planning his grand denouement. But as we will hear again in Act 3, Scene 4, later the same evening, the word can also mean frivolous or foolish, or even devoid of meaning. Idle, for Hamlet, could therefore be a reference to his antic disposition, and it's a further acknowledgement to Horatio that he's going to play mad, lest his friend think he's genuinely crazy. There's a flourish, and the whole court arrives. This is one of the most densely populated scenes in the entire play. Hamlet and Horatio are joined by Claudius, Gertrude, Polonius, Ophelia, Rosencrantz, Guildenstern, and as many others as a given production requires or can afford. Not to mention the performers who will start the show soon enough, I promise. Once they've all filed in and taken their seats, which have been set up presumably during Hamlet's acting seminar earlier in the scene, the king rather publicly addresses his nephew. How fares our cousin Hamlet? In his element now, Hamlet has a suitably peculiar response. Excellent, i'faith. Of the chameleon's dish, I eat the air, promise crammed. You cannot feed capons so. At first reading, this can sound like absolute nonsense. Claudius just asked how Hamlet was doing, but the reply is about chameleons. It is helpful to know, perhaps, that it was believed that chameleons actually lived on air. Shakespeare makes two references to the assumption in The Two Gentlemen of Verona, and here Hamlet decides to get clever with it. He's saying to Claudius that he's very well, that he's eating the chameleon's dish, the heir. There's an aural play on words here too, since Hamlet is also the heir to the throne. This is why he describes the dish as promise crammed. Earlier, Hamlet had spoken of infinite space, and the heir, the image, floats here on the notion of his feeding on air and being promise crammed or full of potential. Later in the scene, he'll shrewdly note to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern that he lacks advancement too. Potential, promise, the idea of being the heir, H-E-I-R, are all fragments in this crazily weird answer that Hamlet gives. He ends the line by saying, you cannot feed capons so. A capon is a rooster that has been castrated and will be fattened for roasting. If Hamlet is talking, even crazily, about potential and heredity, the capon is a fitting antithesis, since a capon has none. It will have no offspring and just has to sit around and wait to be slaughtered. You cannot feed a capon with promise-crammed air, since it has no promise, and will have no heirs. This is dense, crazy language, but there's a wit, and particularly there's a cheek to it. Hamlet himself is the chameleon here. Seconds before, he's been sincerely telling Horatio what a dear friend he is, and then plotting with him to catch the king, if the latter should betray himself in any way. Like a chameleon, he changes his outward appearance in a flash to match his surroundings, and now he's speaking in this crazy manner to the king. 
It's a tiny line, of course, within the play, but it's fabulously clever. The king is not amused at all. He shrugs it off entirely, and bear in mind he's saying this in front of the entire court. I have nothing in this answer, Hamlet. These words are not mine. He's saying, I have nothing to say to you if you're going to answer me like that, Hamlet. These words are not mine. These words mean nothing to me, and they're not even a reasonable answer to my question. It's an affable shrug of an answer, a good way to play in front of his assembled courtiers, for sure. Hamlet answers almost cryptically with, No, nor mine, now. Different editors punctuate the line differently. Sometimes his answer is, No, nor mine. Sometimes it's, No, nor mine, now. Hamlet's next thought is a turn to Polonius, and the division of the line either has him saying, Now, my lord, or just, My lord, after the previous now. But having spent all this time talking about capons and chameleons, I'll save Polonius for the next episode. Thank you so much for listening, and as ever, be sure to visit thehamletpodcast.com for some extra information on the show notes page. I'm endeavouring to find an Elizabethan illustration of a chameleon, if such a thing is to be found, and naturally, if I do find it, I'll share it on our Instagram page. I'll speak to you next time.